In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. You know I always return from Gricciliano in January, ready to share with you the joy of my teaching session. But I must say this year was special. Your future priests were particularly joyful and attentive, eager to learn the truths of our faith and to hear how they will apply this teaching to their ministry and the apostolate tomorrow. For the last week I was there, we studied Petrology, which is a six-year cycle of the study of the Church Fathers. And this year was especially engaging because it is, I think, the most exciting period to teach. What indeed could be more tempestuous and more glorious than the fourth century? Just picture it. The century opens with the most terrible of all persecutions, with an empire intent on exterminating the Christian religion once and for all. It closes with the Catholic faith recognized as the official religion of that same empire, and with the Roman emperor laying down his ancient title of Pontifex Maximus and bestowing it upon the successor of St. Peter. The events of the intervening decades are what defined the lives and writings of the fathers we study in this period. Persecution was soon followed by a crisis of faith that began in the Greek-speaking world and soon spread to the West, or was rather forced upon it by political authority. The emperors, while at first granting tolerance to Christianity, soon wanted to control it. The ancient faith for which the martyrs had died confessed Jesus Christ as the second person of the Blessed Trinity and as true God and true man. This seemed perfectly acceptable at first, but these worldly princes wanted above all to bring peace and stability to their crumbling empire, and they were soon persuaded that a compromised Christian creed, one that denied or at least diminished or obscured the divinity of Christ, is what would be most agreeable to the commonwealth, which, after all, still boasted many pagans unconvinced of the new religion. The Arian heresy had been resoundingly condemned at Nicaea in 325. By 360, in an astonishing turn of events, we see the majority of bishops now cowering before it. And the recovery of the true faith then seemed almost beyond hope for its two great and lonely champions, Athanasius in the East and Hilary in the West, were both in exile. The laity and their priests still clung to the divine truth. But how long could they hold out if they were to be persecuted by their own hierarchy? It was in recalling this moment that the eloquent St. Jerome declared, The Nicene faith stood condemned by acclamation. The whole world groaned and was astonished to find itself Arian. The ship of the apostles was in peril. She was driven by the wind, her sides beaten with waves. No hope was now left 
But the Lord awoke and bade the tempest cease. The beast died, and there was a calm once again. To speak more plainly, all the bishops who had been banished from their sees by the clemency of the new emperor returned to their churches. Then Egypt welcomed the triumphant Athanasius. Then Hillary returned from battle to embrace the Church of Gaul. Neither Hillary nor Athanasius would live to see the full fruits of their labors, which would come in 381. The renewed and amplified condemnation of Arianism, the promulgation of the creed, which we recite this very day at Mass, and the enshrinement of this creed as the official religion of the empire. But with the leisure of our historical eye, we know that this was indeed the moment of triumph. The two pillars of the Catholic faith, one God in three persons, and Jesus Christ, true God and true man, would continue to endure attacks in the century that followed. But the heretics would never again gain the upper hand. If you are already trying to draw parallels in your mind between the fourth century and our time, you will be aided in this reflection as I return to a theme which I only alluded to earlier. Throughout the fourth century, there was a lively sense among thoughtful men that civilization as they knew it was coming to an end. The pagan religion, which had never been more than an endless hodgepodge of cults to various gods, had long ceased to lay any real claim to men's minds. It was a vague civic piety, which was often conflated with the public games and other gatherings. Christianity was feared as a threat to this order, because it declared loyalty above all to a divine king, whose kingdom was not of this world. Yet this King Christ did indeed mean to rule in this world over men's hearts, minds, and actions. Far from being a form of enslavement, this reign of Christ the King was to bring a new and unheard of liberty to mankind. If only the neo-pagans of our era, who are now celebrating their liberation from stale Christian morality, could understand just how terrifying it was to live in the world before Christianity. One could bear witness at every moment to the truth of our Savior's words, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Yes, all the lifestyle choices touted today were around then, and they inflicted untold misery on the vast majority of human beings. Murder, torture, and trafficking of the weak and defenseless in order to bring passing pleasure to the privileged few. In the fourth century, that civilization's days were numbered. The line, nay the lie, which many of us were fed growing up in public school, was that the fifth century brought the fall of the Roman world to the barbarians and the beginning of the long dark ages when all knowledge was despised and men lived purely by superstition. The great minds of that time saw it very differently. During the age of martyrs, Christians believed either that they would continue to die for Christ until he came to judge this cruel world, 
or that he would one day bring the persecutions to an end. Most men then would no longer die for Christ, but they would live for him. The ancient Roman world would now be replaced by a new order, a society founded on prayer and the worship of the true God, in a word, Christendom. The barbarian tribes did not destroy this world. They were glad to be absorbed by it. Men's hearts were full of joy in the generations that followed. The old Roman legions were gone, but Christian armies now swept across the continent to conquer every corner of Europe for Christ. These armies conquered not by force of arms, but by prayer and works of mercy. And the great general of these armies was no ignorant tribal chieftain ushering in an age of darkness. He was the man who was rightly honored as the patron of Europe and the founder of Christian civilization in the West, our glorious Saint Benedict. As we begin this new era of grace, as we find ourselves beset by terrible trials in our nation, the world, and the Church, let us ever be mindful of the chance we have to do good by God's grace, to leave this sinful world better than we found it. Whether we are discerning our vocation in the seminary or the convent, or have already embraced it here in the world, let nothing be preferred to what St. Benedict called with great reverence the work of God. While we have this gift of life, we can use it to worship the God who made us. And if it be his will that this world should long endure, this present age of slavery to sin will bow to a glorious rebirth of Christendom. Most sacred heart of Jesus, thy kingdom come. Through the immaculate heart of Mary. Amen.